Welcome, book fiends, to the Wicked Good Books podcast, a locked tomb read-through podcast. I am your host, Nick Kimball, joined here with my dear friend, Emily. Hello. We'll be joined this season by two guests who are enjoying the material for the first time. Please welcome two of my close friends, Lisa and Junior. Hello. What's going on there, beautiful people? Now, on this episode, we will be covering chapters four through seven of Gideon the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Uh, before we get started here, is there anything you guys wanted to add um, from the previous episode that we didn't get on or we kind of ran out of time? I know we talked in length about those chapters, but I want to make sure before we leave the opening of the book is pretty much from this point on, it's going to start rolling and we're gonna, we'll be going pretty quick. So I didn't know if there's anything we, we missed or that you wanted to bring up in the first three chapters. I don't think so. Mm-mm. I feel like I'm ready. Yeah, I'm ready to let's yeah, get into it. Absolutely. I'm definitely ready to talk about what has gone down in the last uh, in chapters uh, four through seven. So awesome. Awesome. I kind of want to start with like a little primer before we jump into each chapter. Uh, not very long like the last time. But before we start episode three, I just kind of want to talk about our, our general feelings for the book so far, at least from my from from me. Uh there's a lot of really great light world building that happens in these three or these four chapters. And I know I talked about like a light world building and compared to like heavy, uh, heavy prose, heavy exposition, um, where they're kind of just telling you about the world and telling you what you need to know. Uh, whereas this book, I feel like Tamsin kind of sprinkles it in through the dialogue and the descriptions and she does a really great job doing it. And I noticed that in these chapters, that was another thing that stuck out to me a lot was like really starting to get my bearings of where this world sort of takes place and what the technology is like. Uh, so I kind of want to hear what you guys thought about that uh, going into it. Like, I'm, I know we all come from different reading backgrounds and read different things, but as far as world building goes, I consider this book to be a light world building book. And I didn't know what you guys thought about that um, from these, these uh, next four chapters. Like I said before, this was my first sci fantasy that I ever read. Cause I read this actually before I read Dune or some of other more um, well-known sci fantasy stories and i like i said before it was kind of disorienting to me because like you said we're in like with castles and robed priests but then there's also shuttles and so the these next few chapters really started to feel a little bit more immersive to me and not in the way that it was very pointed she wasn't like here is you know a you know old you know, this machinery and it was, a, you know, from a before time, like she just says it in passing, like, oh, there were these generators and there they were, you know, so it, I really liked that. And I did, I feel like part of that helps you just kind of get swept up in the story without you thinking too hard on the world. Like you're very with the characters and kind of what's going on, but she never pulls you out of that to say, oh, here's some exposition on you know, what this world looks like. It's just kind of beautifully woven in there. Yeah, I think so, too. I think it helps immerse you in a way that... Because I, I think there is ways to immerse people in exposition when it's done right. I think there's a lot of good books that do it. Um, it with Muir, I like that it's subtle to the point where you don't have all the answers, but you know who you're following, and know you, you almost, like, trust that you'll get them eventually because of uh, the level of intrigue that's, that's start, that book starts off with. But it's for me, at least from my perspective on a reread, not that I'm looking for these things, but that they're kind of they're sticking out now more than they did before because I, I know a little more. And I feel like with as each chapter passed, it kind of built a little more. And I was really excited about chapter four. I'm oh, sorry, chapter seven. So in chapter seven, I was like, OK, this is like very, very like interesting world. And <clears throat> I was really like just excited to like finally like 
you know, get to the point where, without, you know, spoiling what we're going to talk about, what's it going to look like once they, they finally, like, get inside and things like that. So, yeah. I feel like they're going to be all very different, too. Like, each... Um, is are, Do they call them realms? Is that what they're called? Or how do they... Houses. Houses. Yeah. So each houses. house... I feel like each house is very different. For some reason, I imagine, like, the ninth was, like, very... Like, it reminded me of, like, a futuristic north from game of thrones like it's just like always dark and cold yeah. and rainy and like that's just and like yeah, dreary that's, and like they like true. talked about like you know the catacombs and like i know like in the one season they go down into like that like catacomb thing they have again like, i just imagine like not that i'm trying to like too much relate it to already previously seen work but it's like i tend to like try have to have an image that i just kind of like can relate it to and um, the North was like where I drew a lot of my visual inspiration from. So decent amount of skeletons. Yeah, I think that's, you? I think, yeah, there's skeletons. There's, there's definitely like that undead feeling. And I think that that's important. Like as we go through part of what is enjoyable and like the, you know, the gush fest or like just talking about this story and, and this work is relating it to things that we all already know. Because I think that's part of what makes it stand out a little bit, at least for me, is the way that it shakes that up. So it is really fun to see you, Lisa, kind of relate it back to something you already know. And that kind of helps keep you grounded. But at the same time, it'll be fun to see how it just totally takes, you know, how how it's very different. It'll take you for a ride for sure. (laughs) You you start to, you almost have to let let go and you get pulled into the storm like Wizard of Oz. Yeah, exactly. I did like it. Last episode, Lisa said that um, Crux reminded her of Filch. It was so funny because I didn't tell that to Amy. And when she was listening to it, she's like, oh, he's like a, like a jacked Filch. I was like, it's so weird that you said that because it's exactly what Lisa said. I'm like, did you listen to the episode yet? And she goes, no, I wanted to read the, the chapters first. So I thought that was kind of cool. Great minds think alike. <laughs> exactly. So we'll jump right into it. I will read uh, uh, the chapter four prospectus, and then we'll we'll dive right in, guys, and we'll start chapter four. So. Chapter 4. A disappointed and depressed Gideon sulks in her cell-like room. She bides her time eating nutrient paste, leafing through magazines, and doing sit-ups in the dark. She does this in peace and relative solitude before a shadow appears looming outside her door. Harrowheart calls for Gideon to open the door. The two exchange barbs until the reverend daughter slips one of her bone earrings through the door and from it creating a skeleton arm. To unlock the door. She tells Gideon she can either come with her for an interesting task or stay in sulk. Begrudgingly, Gideon follows Harrow down the vertical tunnel boring into the planet, but this time even deeper than the planter fields of, of skeletons in Castle Dreabur. They ride an old and crude elevator down into the freezing cold catacombs and enter a large chamber to find Agalemne sifting through piles of dusty bones and rusted weapons artifacts once belonging to previous cavaliers and retainers of the locked tomb. Gideon takes note of Agalemne and Harrow's conversation as her swordmaster picks through the detritus of the catacombs. She seems to be searching for a combination of weapons suitable for a cavalier that are in working condition. Before Gideon can slip away, Harrow reveals to Gideon that she is to attend her as her cavalier primary, her personal guard and companion, to answer the Emperor's summons. She will accompany Harrow in place of Ordus to the first house, where Harrow is to begin her training to become a lictor. Despite Gideon finding the idea hilariously awful, she knows this may be her only way off this cold and dreary planet. Agalemne urges her to take this chance and live her life away from Drever. Alright, that is chapter 4, guys. What did you think from the hip thoughts when you finished that chapter? Because it's pretty much where... 
I, I don't want to say where the plot begins because it re- for me it really begins on page one when it's just it starts in the middle of the action but this is where we start to see like you can see the the mapping of where this might go or, or like what, what what the the underarching plot is going to be is gideon joining harrow to do this task well i really enjoyed like her immediate banter of just being like i'm not agreeing to this i thought that that was just like i enjoyed like listening to Harrow and Aglemene and Crux kind of discuss everything and be like, well, you sh- like you can do this and they can do that and she'll go with you here. And like, I can just imagine Gideon just like leaning in the corner in the dark, just like, I'm right here, guys. Like I can hear every single thing that you're saying and not once have I spoken up and said that I would be up for any of it. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was really the, so hilarious when she she was saying like she had long since decided this was not a good place to be and she starts just slowly backing out. <laughs> it's just so funny. <laughs> She's like, no. Mm-mm. She like tries so hard to be quiet and like slip, yeah, like slip away in the shadows. Which the image alone of just this like relatively in shape, buff, you know, female sword wielding uh, member of the ninth house, just like trying to like hide in the shadows, and like there's only three people in the room, so it's not like they, you know, they know she's down there. But her and Harrow just exchanging barbs in the cell always cracks me up because it's like playful banter. And you get that they really mean it. They, in, in this moment, at least, they, they definitely disdain each other. But there's like a certain level of tolerance and acceptance that comes from Harrow or the most, I think. And uh, that, that part just cracks me every, every time I read it. Yeah, I definitely uh, love the author's um, hints of humor that she peppers in throughout all these different situations that you know each character is involved with. And it, and like you, Nick, um, I, I definitely chuckle to myself, you know, seeing her again, you know, it's not like she's a small girl and can just, you know, like slip through the cracks and nobody will notice, you know. And to me, that just, it just, it kind of reminds me of like Pink Panther, you know, like how he would like inch across the wall and like. 100%. I think she starts the whole chapter off that way too. I mean, you know, we, we drop in right with Gideon being just depressed and just a little defeated because like you could tell that plan she's tried to escape many times before we learned that in the last chapter in the first couple chapters and it seems like this one had a little more weight to it because she and I, I can't tell if it's because there were so many parts to it or because she worked so hard for it or because it was right there and then it was taken yeah. from her or maybe it's a bit of all of that but I like that it's you know she had equipped herself down there in the dark with fresh ambition to become free but she didn't she got the depression, <laughs> which is just like Tamsin's little meme jokes that she drops in that like 10 years from now, maybe they'll still be funny. I'd like to think they'll still be pretty funny. Um, but reading them now, it's just like it's an absolute delight to see stuff like that and, and be able to instantly relate to that that known joke or that reference. Yeah, I, I think it's it's so funny, though, that Junior brought that up because we're going down into these dark, scary catacombs. It starts out with Gideon being depressed. Obviously, the banter between Gideon and Harrow, them kind of going back and forth with each other. But then you have her, have Tamsin is describing, or Gideon through her voice is describing Iglemene, the way she's wearing her wool jacket and gloves. 
It gave her the appearance of a marshmallow pierced with four toothpicks of differing lengths. So it's just like that's so it's so funny. Like you said, Junior, sprinkled in with all this other like catacomb, death, dark imagery. And then it's like there's a marshmallow <laughs> in there. And uh, yeah, I think the author does a really, really good job of blending those two tones of like humor like kind of crass humor but then also like dark gothic i don't know atmosphere i feel i noticed it um in the first uh i actually noticed like right away in the first chapter um i i find her writing style just really interesting in general because like we're reading this sci-fi novel and it's definitely not on earth so like earthly things you would not imagine to be on this planet or where you know where they are and like they'll but they'll you'll be reading and she'll talk about chocolate or marshmallows and I'm like I'm sure that they would exist there but at the same time it like almost like removes you for a second but it's done in a humorous way like it's not like it feels misplaced it just is like it makes me chuckle but it also is like marshmallows like or like the one she talks about like chocolates on a hotel pillow and I was like do they have hotels how would she know what chocolates on a hotel pillow are (laughs) it fits the it fits the character too because a lot of that a lot of the narration in these in this book uh it's coming from Gideon right so you get the sense that that humor matches perfectly with Gideon and her humor so even though the narrator and the Gideon are technically technically separate entities it's they're also like almost like hand in hand the same yeah they Um, go to they go together perfectly it's it's very strange but it's very interesting as well yep and i think she also uses those words just to kind of give you some uh sense of how to relate to the situations that they're in makes me wonder too upon second reread just thinking about you know because i know what tamson's doing in terms of blending modern language and, and references into a, a futuristic sci fantasy piece and both giving us something to hold on to as like a, almost like a, like a block or touchstone while also disorientating us. But I also like to think too, because the, the narrator and Gideon are so similar, um, if not the same in, in some regards, I, I almost think it's like you can almost imagine Gideon seeing a hotel in one of her magazines and like that coming up. Like, yeah. just like, like her knowledge all comes from junk food and junks like, propaganda basically not, not propaganda but like just she consumes junk essentially and uh it makes you wonder how much knowledge she's acquired that way too um i just have to say lines Go sorry ahead. no no like i just have to say like i can't count on i can't count how many times i've actually laughed or chuckled out loud just based on a lot of the references and things so sorry to interrupt i just wanted to say that because i'm like she like laughing at you know Thinking back to to when I was listening to it, I'm like just like cracking up, like oh my god, I, I probably remember this part. So, yeah, exactly. And, uh, Amy, when I when I played the first three chapters on, on our way to um our trip last weekend, she was chuckling the whole whole drive, and I think this one made her want to keep reading because like she got the humor. And again, testament to the audiobook, Moira Quirk really, it, I would have enjoyed it just the same if I had just read it. But this uh, maybe a little bit more with Moira Quirk because she she brings these characters to life like we talked about in the last episode, and especially with the, the the timing of the comedy. That's something that I don't. I'm just not that skilled to be able to read something and also give it comedic timing. And a lot of these lines, read a certain way, just wouldn't be funny. And kind of going with what I was saying before, uh, what I was about to say was I highlighted my favorite lines in the chapter, and uh, she's uh, is Gideon talking to Harrow because Harrow's trying to get her to come out of her cell. 
And she's like, Nona Jesimus, she said slowly. The only job I do for you would be if you wanted someone to hold the sword as you fell on it. The only job I do for you would be if you wanted to your ass kicked so hard the locked tomb opened and a parade came out to sing, Lo, and be, <laughs> Lo a destructed ass. The only job I do would be if you wanted me to spot you while you backflipped off the top of the tee of Drearbur. And then Harrow Hart just goes, that's three jobs. <laughs> Die in a fire, Nona Jessamus. Like, Yeah, I will say, like, I don't, I mean, not to, like, spend way too much time on this, but I really, really think that it's a testament to the audiobook and ties back into what Lisa was saying is those little things that are part of our world that we can relate to. And like, it makes us get the joke because the same that Junior was saying, I would be laughing out loud when I first listened to this, I was like, would be cooking dinner. This was like a few years ago when it came out and I would be laughing. So I would pause it and play it out loud for my husband. Just the few lines that Gideon would say that were funny, but because of the way it kind of relates to our world and the way that the narrator does such a good job, it's like he could get the jokes too, even if he wasn't listening to it. Like he had no concept of where we were in the book, who the characters were, but it was just so funny on its own. I would pause it so that he could listen to some of like those <laughs> hilarious parts. And, you know, cause he'd be like, why are you laughing? Cause I'd be listening to it cooking dinner, but <laughs> I yeah, I just think, it, I think that is really a big testament to that. We can be in this whole fantasy world you can play out just a, like, you know, little lines, some banter here and there for someone, and they will still laugh at it. You know, it's because it's, it's just well done. I love it. So we descend, we, we, we follow Gideon into the catacombs with Harrow after she kind of like forces her out of her cell. And I mean, if she really wanted to, she could have stayed. So there, again, there's that, that sense of like, even though she's difficult and kind of dragging her feet, it's better than doing nothing and sulking. So. Gideon joins here down below. They actually make a comment about how Harrow refuses to walk on the side of the railing next to her for fear of like Gideon pushing her off, which I thought was kind of funny too. But they ride this elevator shaft down. And before I go into the details of like the little world, the light world building that keeps popping up throughout this chapter, um, what, one question that I had written down that I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to ask you guys was um, we had talked a lot about atmosphere in the previous episodes and the vibe of this world. What did you guys think about? Uh, what did you guys think of this chapter with our girl Gideon's descent into the catacombs with Drebber? The only thing I could think about when they were in the elevator was Tower of Terror. So that's where my mind went. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But I I think that the, um, the, just the way that everything's described in this world, I mean, I, I get a sense for like how everything is and, how dark it is and how like cold it is. And like, it's just in this elevator and it's like going to catacombs, like again, even deeper into the earth, even darker and even colder. Um, and I think that's one of the things that the author does really well is giving us glimpses of this world without getting too into it, but being detailed enough for me to see it. For sure. I like that she, and you know, some of the things that stick out to me are, are those little world building moments like when they pass by the generators where she's like and the generators are super loud and working nobody knows how to use them but they're there and you're starting to get the sense that there, there's technology but it's old and perhaps not taken care of very well or at least not really overseen and there's a sense that like at any moment it could just break or it's just gotten to a point where it'll live forever but like like an old car almost it, it won't look pretty but it, but it functions 
Um, and then when they get to the catacombs, everything changes and it goes back to that castle, graveyard, uh, underground tomb, essentially, with skeletons and weapons, like handheld weapons, like swords and knuckle blades and, and buckler shields and things like that. And, and we see Agalemne trying to find a weapon. And we're not 100% certain what's going to happen yet, but soon after their conversation uh, between the weapons master and the reverend daughter happens, Gideon kind of picks up on it and she's like, I don't like where this is going. And then the next thing you know, we've got <laughs> Gideon basically being uh, coerced or told she's going to attend Harrow and go with her because Ordis is gone. It's her fault, quote unquote, that Ordis is gone, even though it's really not. Um, and Agalemne is just too old. And even though Gideon protests it, pretty heavily and is irritated that they're you know it's like you know when you're talking about somebody while they're in their room kind of thing she doesn't enjoy that aspect of it but at the same time Agalemne like strikes a chord where she's like you know stop being you know beetle-headed like this is actually your chance to get off like you can either stay here in the place that you hate or you can leave and go be free in service to the place that you hate those are your options because sometimes life doesn't have more than two sometimes it doesn't have more than one yeah I think and then at the end of everything um you know, it's really funny. You're kind of enjoying this banter. You're going down. This light world building is coming. Iglemony kind of finally talks Gideon into doing it. And then right at the end of the chapter, there's like that big moment of tension where Iglemony like has, like she can tell there's that Iglemony is actually really worried about something. And she's telling Gideon like something, something's going to happen. Like we, we have to do something here and I thought that was a really good kind of turn of tone at the very end where it was kind of funny and you know they we got all through that and then now it's like this big moment of tension leading into you know okay well now it's going to happen in the next chapter you know yeah 100% it, it definitely it definitely kind of prefaces the next several chapters of like yeah. what, the, what the next few months are going to be for Gideon I also like that we're getting a sense of there's no pistols or, or rocket launchers down there in the crypt. It's very formal, more archaic weapons. And again, uh, in a, as a juxtaposition to all this weird technology that's old and dated but still functions. Um, and that's, again, that, those sci fantasy elements just kind of leaking through the pages. I also like that we're getting a little bit, of, we're getting a preview of an idea of what a cavalier is. Um, we get more of that later, but I like that these are like the bones of the previous cavaliers and they all have different specialties and different weapons yeah i think now that you mentioned that i never i never realized that those were the previous cavaliers in the catacombs wow see you learn <laughs> something new every time i was like what is that really what those are but yeah you're right <laughs> there's i'm trying to find this quote and i've been looking for it like literally since the last time we met oh um, no it's just driving me nuts it's something like Gideon is basically, I love to sit here and talk. And as much as I love being talked about while I'm in the room, you know, but it also gives me the hurt feeling. So I'm going to leave. Like it's one of my favorite lines by her in this chapter. And I can't for the life of me find it. Um, if I find it, I'll quote it and drop it in the, the podcast later. But before we move on to chapter five, um, just to kind of recap what we know happens, Gideon sort of like half ass agrees to do this with Harrow. Um, but she has to train because Cavaliers, it's, there's a tradition to it. You can't just walk in with her big-ass two-handed bastard sword and, and, you know, just tear ass up with it. She has to actually learn how to use a more formal, more-for-show weapon. Um, and so I believe they stick her with a sword and a knuckle blade is what um, they, they end up uh, picking for her. Um, I also like the idea, just, again, another subtle world-building slash kind of giving you the vibe and atmosphere of this this world 
these weapons are old and rusted and kind of busted and that alone kind of gives you the idea that they've been down there for a very long time plus there's a lot of them so there have been many cavaliers you pair that with harrow saying this doesn't happen very often again it's starting to give you more of a timetable of when this story kind of takes place in this you know pseudo fictional world yep i also into good oh no i was just gonna say also i i feel like they were kind of hyping her up like you know like like anybody else it, it, it would take at least a year to uh train but you gideon like it only take like two months like so i feel like they were just hyping her up just to kind of make her feel good about herself about having to do this and then she was still like well you know like she i think what you were talking about like some of the the, the humor and how like how she was didn't really like she wasn't feeling the sword at all and she just wanted to use the sword that she was used to but eventually obviously as we know um she really had no choice <laughs> yeah and i think we there's a, a kind of piggybacking off of that too gideon's kind of getting the praise from the, the hype from both of them because ha even harrow kind of hypes her up in, in her own way her instructors hyping her up about her abilities and then even harrow kind of stops for a moment and realizes she's like oh I have hurt your heart. I have hurt your heart, haven't I? There's a little bit of truth in there. You, you can tell it's not 100% snarky. Two people that have gotten so good at insulting and being mean to each other that they forget when they've crossed lines so deeply that they can actually cause physical harm to each other and not even notice. And that was a moment for me that stuck out that I actually highlighted that, you know, Harrow actually, that's her version of genuine. <laughs> I thought it was inter um, interesting how the entire chapter, they're essentially trying to convince Gideon to agree to this and there's one part where um Eglemene says she's like you're the best swordsman that the ninth house has ever produced maybe ever and this is when Gideon is still saying that she hasn't agreed to this and then by the very end of the chapter uh Gideon says so what happens if I agree and then she turns and she says then you hurry up if I'm going to turn you into the ninth the ninth cavalier I needed to have started six years ago it's like but you just got done telling her that she's the best one you've ever produced and now you're like well then I need to exactly. start six years ago so it's kind of like the you can see them trying to sway her to say yes and now that she's kind of saying like well okay what if I do then she's like all right well then we need to get going come on yeah also Nick by the way your quotes at the top of page 54 oh oh yes look at you I Your face of surprise. Days, <laughs> right? I live for those days when everyone stands around talking about how bad I am at what I do, but it also gives me hurt feelings. <laughs> <laughs> it kills me. I don't know why that line kills me every single time. Uh, you know, but you're, you're totally right about that too, Lisa. And I think something else, it uh, they mentioned, I believe, in this chapter that's not just sword play and, and tr weapon training, that there's like, there's a little more to it in terms of how you speak and, and your behavior. And that's something that we, right out the gate, we already can kind of know that uh, Gideon's probably not well equipped for being polite or <laughs> her table manners probably aren't the best. So like it, it's kind of, you're already kind of seeing, oh boy, I, I think I can see where this is going. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, we'll start, uh, we'll end this chapter here. So let's jump into the chapter five prospectus. I believe, Lisa, you wanted to read this one? Sure. Chapter 5. In the Reverend Daughter's Library, Gideon and Harrow sit and discuss the second letter they received from the Resurrecting King, the Holy Emperor, and hash out the details of their deception. Gideon is poorly applying the Ninth House face paint while reading the letter over again. 
She remarks on their destination, wondering aloud why they won't be attending the summons at a space station in deep space instead. She then recalls the fact that necromancers require Thanergy, or as she calls it, death juice, to fuel their necromantic abilities, and that Thanergy can only be found where there is life to drain from it. Harrow and Gideon bicker about the 10,000 years of tradition surrounding the Lictor and Cavalier summons and what they are to bring to the first house. After arguing about the dress code and Gideon's preferred weapon, Gideon lets Harrow properly apply the rest of her painted death's mask. Harrow tells Gideon that she must learn how to properly apply the face paint on her own, wear her black robe, and train with the rapier instead of her massive sword. Gideon asks for more information on what to expect from their sojourn to the first house. Harrow denies her this for now and leaves her to brood. Excellent, Lisa. Thank you very much. Anytime. So, this is a fun little chapter. I don't know if it's the shortest chapter in the book. It's a very short chapter. Um, but you get a lot crammed into here, and not in a way that feels overstuffed. There's just a lot of, like, new words popping up, new new world-building pieces, new new information coming our way. We get the Emperor referenced as the Resurrecting King. Um, mm-hmm. We learn about Thanergy in this one. They talk about the 10,000 years tradition um, surrounding the Lictors and Cavaliers and how that's super important. We also learned that the the death mask face paint is kind of a big deal for the ninth house. So there's a lot of little, uh, I shouldn't say little, a lot of big world building pieces that get dropped in this chapter. All while Gideon and Harrow are just chilling in her library and Gideon is just kind of trying to get out of wearing her robe, basically. I felt like this was like... I mean, they're still, like, kind of bickering a little bit here, but I feel like this was, like, the first moment where we kind of saw, like, some sort of calmness and, like, intimate type of behavior between the two of them in just the fact that, like, intimate, just, like, you're painting someone's face and you're that close like to these civil. these two people hate each other and this girl's literally painting her face. So I feel like this was, like, the first time we've kind of seen, like, some slight semblance of tolerance of each other from either of them yeah right after Gideon bites her finger but yes (laughs) (laughs) but yeah like you're I know this is the tamest it's been but also like she did bite her (laughs) and Gideon surrendered to the idea at this point maybe not fully but she's she's now going through the motions of her mind might not be there yet but her body's like okay go here sit here Mm -hmm. wear this outfit put on this paint what else do I got to do? I got to do this every single day. I'm not doing it. And it's like, no, you will do it. And I like that there's that, again, juxtaposition or, or that, you know, <laughs> that odd pairing of this little leaf uh, skinny necromancer girl and this jacked cavalier. And like, she's just putting on the face paint to this like giant pretty much. Yep. To me, it was almost like a mother daughter moment where the daughter wasn't really feeling it. Like, you know, like, oh, God, Mom, I don't want to go to this thing and you make me do it and you make me put on this ugly makeup like that I don't want to wear. You know, that's kind of like what I got out of it, that, that whole scene and, you know, how the author was describing, you know, a, a, a point where, you know, she was painting her, her face so close that at one point she could easily just like jab it in her eye. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, like. Like it was definitely um, in an odd way a sweet moment for the two, but we still know that they're very at odds against each other. So um, it was just kind of cool, just like seeing again another side of uh, them um, in their relationship with each other. So, and we learn about Thanergy in this chapter, which 
for a book about necromancers, it's it's one of those things that's bound to come up hopefully sooner than later, and that's the magic and how it works. And uh, I was really curious to ask you guys, um, do you guys have any thoughts or theories on Thanergy yet? And uh, being the magic system, it's not super deeply explained in this moment. So if you don't have anything yet, that's totally cool. But I did like that they mentioned, or Gideon had mentioned, or the narrator is mentioning that um, the reason why necromancers don't like being out in space is because there's nowhere to draw their power from. They have to be near sources of life, and uh, which is a pretty obvious trade-off for dark magic that you know you know brings life back from the dead and things of that nature. So like, that part makes sense. But I was curious to know or to ask you guys, especially our two new readers, if you had any theories. Not really. Um, I'm not like overly familiar with a whole lot of um necromancy type terms in that sense so like i'm not sure if thanergy is something that is for this book or it kind of sounds like you alluded that that's like a thing that has been said before thanergy is a mirror thing but the, uh, the the concept of necromantic magic usually comes from removing life or taking life from something living and then repurposing it in some other way not always but like i always kind of default back to like D D. Dungeons and Dragons logic for magic and kind of start there and build off of that. And that's sort of like what a dark necromancer or uh, a lich would do is kind of, you know, draw their power from sources of life because they're taking life away, essentially. And this. Yeah. Book, yeah. I mean, fan energy. Gotcha. OK, so that's more like just like a her term. Yeah. I mean, I, I've I've heard of things like that before with necromancy and like obviously your power, like energy has to come from somewhere. So obviously it has to come from something. Um, but I. I assumed that that's kind of what the energy is. I don't really know where, like what it, exactly it is that they're drawing it from life form wise. Like, I'm not sure like what, or if, if it is life form or what, if it's like plant or human or what, I don't know that I'm not sure. Um, this seems like a dark book, so I'm going to probably go with a darker thing that they're <laughs> more dark thing that they're going to be taking this magic from. But like, that's, uh, but I don't actually have like a, a solid grasp. I'm not really, I'm excited to see what it actually is, where they're getting that from. I think a good base to have in your mind, at least um, uh, I give this to a lot of friends I know that are starting off reading for the first time but haven't read anything fantasy at all, is, but they know Harry Potter. Um, like, you know, when the Dementors are, are uh, like, at least in the, the film adaptation, they do in the book too, but it's more obviously visually um, evident in the movie. Um, and Harry Potter three of the Dementors like brush their hand past the field of flowers and they just die. That that's not what they're doing in Harry Potter. That's just like their you know their death presence. But in this book, in terms of absorbing life and, and repurposing as power, that's a good way to start thinking of uh, how energy or death juice works, um, how it functions in the larger scheme of their society, uh, and the, how their magic. Uh, is balanced that will be, remains to be seen but I kind of just wanted to touch on it because it is the first time it's mentioned and I feel like it's a pretty good little sneak peek of what's to come I mean nothing about this book really gives me overly happy joyful vibes so <laughs> I'm just trying to like mentally prepare for some really like dark shit to go down <laughs> your face Emily so good yeah I'm like <laughs> Um, I will say that, like, honestly, on reread, so when I first read this chapter, I don't even think Thanergy, like, I just heard it, and I got the concept of 
can't be done in outer space because not anything died. So there's like no kind of life recycling stuff there. And that was it. Because to me, this chapter was such like a character building chapter. So when I did on the reread, when I brought up the energy, I was like, oh, they brought up the energy in chapter five. Like, I didn't even remember that. Like, it actually surprised me to see that the kind of like magic system or just kind of a little exposition, like just like that little seed planted there. And then I did remember that fact, but I didn't realize it was so early on. So I think it's really interesting that Muir, it's almost like, like Lisa said, she doesn't really have a big theory about it. She, it just like plants a seed. Like, okay, I've heard of it now. And later when things get brought up more, it's easier to like, you have something like, oh yeah, I heard that. I remember, you know, but yeah, I was super surprised. It was in this chapter. Like I totally it's, forgot. <laughs> it's super early. I remember I, I noted it on my first read, but to me, I was like, okay, Necromancers, that's the way they, you know, that's what their magic is called. Note, move on. And I didn't like. Yep, exactly. I didn't think of the the larger um, light world building implications, like the fact that there are, okay, there's space stations. Getting into space stations, so now we know they don't just have you know plants that are terraformed and lived on, but they have space stations also. I wonder if that yeah. would come up later on too. Little things like that that just you start to build all these different puzzle pieces of this larger image of what this world looks like and what kind of world it is, um, and that to me is just super interesting. Uh, as someone not just who reads a lot and watches a lot of movies, but, you know, I'm, I'm so used to it being like kind of right up front. You get all of them the first chapter and you got to kind of process through it and figure out what's important, what's not. I like in this book that it's just little pieces. And to me, I think that's what kind of makes it a fun read is, is that you don't have to think too much about it. And I think what the author is doing is, is she's giving you these little tidbits of things just enough for you to process and then when it is probably revealed in more detail later you're like oh okay i remember this because it was mentioned you know in this particular chapter so that's what i'm actually kind of getting so um that way the reader's not too overwhelmed with like you were saying like in a lot of other books or movies or what have you how they build so much up in the beginning and then you're kind of like forced to process it or rewatch it or reread it several times before you really get it like how many times have you guys have watched a movie and it's like oh my god i totally didn't even realize that that happened <laughs> um and you don't realize it until like the third or fourth time watching it if it's a movie that you like of course or a book that you like to read so fifth element at least once the time i watch that movie something new pops up and i'm like oh, oh my favorite movie my favorite and we've, and we've talked about this before yeah so <laughs> i wonder if i actually had it up here on my movie poster wall but i don't so I, I, everything is Halloween now. I got my, yeah, I can just barely see it. The VH. Uh, yeah, I see it over. The, yeah, I got that. I got that side tangent, and we'll keep this in because anything. Yeah. Anytime Fifth Element gets brought up. I'm happy. And we get excited. Actually, <laughs> it has a little bit of Fifth Element vibes to it too, because again, that's that light world building. There's just such subtle things in Fifth Element that are mentioned. And um, my VHS I got from a client actually for my work. Um, they gave it to me uh, as like a gift, and, and when I opened it, it's also a blockbuster copy. So it says like you know, be kind, rewind on it with the blockbuster logo. I'm like, oh, that's like two, two for it's like two for one deal for me. Um, I, I love that movie. Nick, we would have been best buds as kids, as adolescents. I'm telling yes. you, yes, right? <laughs> the Halloween costumes would have, been, would have been awesome. Oh my gosh, don't get me started. <laughs> that's so fun. Well, I one thing I did notice before we move on from this chapter two is that they mentioned the first house and they mentioned other planets, and we're starting to understand that okay the nine houses that we know of because we, we know the poem in the beginning 
So we got nine houses, potentially nine planets in, in this world. And they're going to the first house to conduct this ceremony, this tradition. It sounds like it's a little bit of training. Uh, you're not 100% certain what that's going to entail yet, but that, that's a little world-building detail that I, I caught this time around. And I wanted to kind of bring it up because it, it is super important throughout the book. And uh, I think I would have enjoyed it more if I started catching on to that stuff early on. But I didn't know if you guys had any thoughts about that yet or if you're still just kind of taking everything in before you move on to the next chapter. This doesn't really necessarily have to do with the world building, but I just loved this moment in their banter <laughs> where she's like talking about she, I guess she's, she's like fully dressed and has the face paint on and everything like that. And she just, I look like a douche. Like that's also she's like, I look like, <laughs> and like, um, like she literally said, she like Gideon said drearily, "I look like a douche," to which Harrow then just immediately replies, "I want you to appear before me every day like this." <laughs> like, <it's> just like <laughs> clearly she doesn't like it, so she's like, "I want you to appear like this every day." Harrow's really good at like taking what she says, acknowledging it in her own in her mind, and then like skipping over it and saying, "Okay, now like this is what's this is the important information back." It's not, it's not that she's ignoring her. Or tolerating it, it's almost like they're just so used to each other doing that that it, it, they have like a system almost. It's like their way of their little way of communicating. Yeah, I definitely feel like with Lisa that this was more of a character. Like, it's so good how Mir does it though. Like, there's so much world building just subtly being dropped in, but to me, it was so much about their characters. Like, um, like Tamson gives Harrow like cramped, impatient handwriting. And to me, that's such like an excellent, like little unique personality trait and like character building thing that just is so like subtle, but like really important that, yes, it makes sense. Hera would have like cramped, impatient handwriting, you know? And so I think it's true that there's all this world building in this like really small chapter, but there's also all this like character work and they're kind of finally talking to each other not biting each other's heads off just their hands <laughs> and then you know and then of course the the world building i think really starts to pick up in the next two chapters even more Ten thousand years of tradition i was looking for something specific on this chapter about um the letter that they received from the resurrecting king but i, I definitely will piggyback on all of that too in terms of this being a, a very character driven uh chapter and, and gina kind of started with this too it's and, and lisa that's it's sort of like uh, a different scenario. They're kind of doing the same banter, but they're a little more civil, and we're starting to see another layer of their personalities come out, especially because it's just the two of them. There's no one, there's no audience for them to perform in front of. It's not that she's trying to make people laugh, but you can tell like when she's nervous or uncomfortable, her, it's big, bigger, louder is better for her, whereas Harrow, it's more like more punishing, and, and she gets more, um, I don't know if self-conscious is the right word for her, because I don't think she's capable, but... She definitely, I think, feels a certain sense of uh, she has to kind of present herself a certain way in front of her her subordinates and her her own stewards and and in front of Crux. Um, and when it's just the two of them, we, we, we get a little a slight like the defenses go down just a little bit, like the the heat level comes down just a little bit. I feel like it also kind of humanizes her as well in a way because don't we all do that? Like, you know, you. Obviously, like have your general way of being with everybody, but then you know when you have um, a relationship like you have between these two, um, 
you, there tend to be certain nuances that actually happen. And I think this is what we're actually seeing with these, you know, two characters now, like you said, without an audience, without, you know, people watching and <clears throat> them having to think about like what they are, you know, what they're going to say or not to say. Um, it's, it, it's definitely like an interesting dynamic seeing it uh, from this point of view when they're alone by themselves and, you know, doing what they have to do to get ready for this, this whole thing. Yeah, totally. It, it, it's like a, not necessarily a quiet moment because they're both being so loud, but it, it, it's like the the energy settled down because the first three chapters are very, a lot of moving parts, a lot of action and, and almost suspense and, and bells and skeletons and fights and shuttles and, and church chapel meetings. And now we have this quiet moment in a library. And again, that library feeling of these old tomes and dusty books and bottled skeletons and, and just all kind of eerie, spooky material in this in, in Harrow's study, all kind of adding to that atmosphere and that side fantasy vibe. This book will just continue to give off as you go. Um, but let's jump into chapter six now. I, I'll read this one. Chapter six. Gideon stews over the next three months that will take her and Harrow to the Emperor's summons. She spends most of her time training with Agalemne with a rapier, forced to wear the face paint and threatened with the heating coils being turned off in her room by Crux. Gideon caves in and applies and wears the face paint daily. Harahark has been working below with Crux and various acolytes of the ninth house below in the depths of Dreber on a seemingly grisly task unknown to Gideon. Gideon is permitted to skip her prayer obligations to continue practicing the rapier with weapons master Agalemene. Harahark locks herself in her library most of the time, leaving only to watch Gideon train and command her to master the application of the face paint. Gideon overhears Agalemne and Harrow discussing the other houses, including the second and third houses, and how they assume the summons to also be a sort of competition between the other houses. In the last week before their departure, Gideon packs her trunk with Ordis's hand-me-down robes and her ninth house regalia. Gideon is also given a black rapier with an ornate hilt and knuckle blades made of obsidian. She finds a way to pack her two-handed sword at the bottom of her chest in secret. On the day of their departure, the denizens of the Ninth House join Gideon and Harrow on an outdoor platform before their shuttle arrives to take them to the First House. Harrow addresses her people. She informs them that Crux and Agalemne will be in charge during her absence, as her mother and father have chosen to seal themselves behind the passageway that leads to the locked tomb. Harrow bids her people farewell, and Gideon notices that Harrow is crying. The two women board the shuttle and depart, leaving behind Dreber in the ninth house. All right, chapter six. The locked tomb is a place confirmed. Where, why, and what is it? Those are some of the big questions, at least during my first read through that I had. Um, in, in your mind, at least everyone reads differently, but for me, I'm like starting to make like a little like word bank of all these hot words that keep popping up if they're not explained fully so i can if it, if it comes up later i can remember it and lock tomb is all over this book you know from the get-go to the cover and uh we find out very little about it up until this point but now we know that and, and we know that her mother and fa harrow's mother and father are reanimated they're you know undead and as far as the members who are not in the know of the ninth house they're choosing to lock themselves on the other side of the locked tomb. That to me was a big world building slash story detail that I was excited to get. Cause now maybe like it, it gives you that literal mystery box. 
And I wanted to know what you guys thought of that. I mean, for me, I I don't know. I feel like at this point, I was more surprised that she was leaving behind her dead parents. <laughs> I was like, what's going to happen to them? <laughs> you know? Because she's been, like, basically reanimating their corpses and puppeting them around. And so now they're, like, locked. They're in the locked tomb, but I assume they're not inside the locked tomb because the tomb is supposed to say shut forever in their prayers. So it was one of those things where you're kind of like, okay, what? And you're just, you're just like, I don't really understand what that means yet. But it's true. It definitely gave it that more, like you said, Nick, that com- like firm presence. Like, okay, the locked tomb is actually a thing. And what is it? And it's just kind of like this question that for me just got kind of was simmering on on the back burner of my brain. Mm-hmm. It, it, it poses this ominous question of like, what is this thing? What is this place? Right. And it, it's something you almost don't like. At least for me, as I was going, I'm like, I didn't, I don't want to know yet. Like, I want to know, but I don't want to know yet because I feel like it's this mystery box, and I feel like that's going to be for later. And I'm not even sure, to be honest, and I'm hoping that this is one thing I want to pick up on in the reread, if I can pick up on it later, is uh, if Harrow's parents just, like, just stop being animated when, when she's gone. Like, when she when she leaves, is there, like, a radius for her spell? Like, when she's gone, do they just collapse and, and, and return to being dead? Or are they just going to be sitting in place behind the door that guards the locked tomb f- f- until whenever? It's something that I don't remember getting an answer for later on, um, mm. and I'm curious. Yeah, I don't know. I'm curious to see if that if that comes up because we know that uh, one of the biggest concerns of Harrow leaving is if Harrow leaves, then the the jig will be up, like the the ruse will be over. They'll they'll know what's happening uh, with their parents, and it made me wonder. Okay, well that's their solution. Does that mean that her magic runs out, or that just because she's not there, she can't puppet them, so they're pretty much just stationary dead people? Yeah, I think this chapter was like a, just a really good kind of transition pa- chapter where you feel the anticipation of like those last those those that transition time when you're looking forward to something and time kind of flies by um, and then it leads up to that big moment, which Junior was asking about in the like the very beginning about when is Gideon going to get off this rock? <laughs> and, you know, this is that moment where she's just like once she turns around, she can, you know, basically bring the whole place down in her mind. And uh, so that was like kind of the big climactic moment of this chapter to me is Gideon finally getting off that rock. (laughs) I like how when Gideon notices Harrow crying, she just turns and she's like, do you want my hanky? (laughs) (laughs) So funny. It's interesting too, because she makes that joke to her. Like she gets really close to her after the shuttle door closes. And it's almost like a, not a private joke, but it's, it's, it's again, it's that weird, these two people have spent a lot of time, they grew up together. They just don't know how to be nice to each other. But at the same time, like giving each other shit is almost like their form of being nice. In yeah, some or like ways. comforting her. In, in a weird way, like almost like Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because at first she's like, oh, you know, oh, wow. Nona Desmus is laying it on thick with the tears. But then she really starts to hear it in her voice and be like, oh, wow. She, she starts to like think more realistically. Oh, she's never left here either. So this is kind of a big deal for her. And also... There's a lot riding on this. There's a lot that could go wrong. And then, you know, the game is up. The, you know, the, the ruse is, the hoax is over. So it was kind of a cool moment 
for Gideon to kind of stop for a second and, and appreciate that moment, while also for Harrow saying goodbye to her people, it's a pretty big deal. Yeah, I, I think I didn't really re- notice that. But once you say it, it's almost like by her giving her that blatant sarcasm is kind of her way of kind of comforting her or helping her kind of snap out of it or, you know, in their own very interesting way. <laughs> exactly. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, they both have to succeed for this to work. So it's like you can tell it's it's not going to be one of those friendships that's going to be uh, at least at warm least, and fuzzy. <laughs> not even just that, but like they're not going to be tr- kind to like one up each other or undermine each other because they both have to succeed. For this to work, Gideon only gets her freedom if Harrow succeeds in what she's going to do, and vice versa. Harrow can't do what she's supposed to do if she doesn't play the part and doesn't meet this traditional uh, standard. But by having a cavalier and making her capable as well, so you can kind of tell it's not going to be one of those stories where it's like the two people bickering but also trying to undermine each other because that won't help them. They both have to work together in some fashion. Um, and for me, that was a moment of like Gideon being fresh and being kind of a dick but also in a weird way comforting her with sarcasm what did you think about the uh the training in this chapter um with agalemne um, her learning how to use a new sword um i, I love the i love the concept of like getting this, this you know relatively jacked or muscular woman who likes to wield this double-handed bastard sword pretty much and now she's training with this like <laughs> this very small ornate meant more for show <laughs> rapier <laughs> and to me that those two images just crack me up yeah i liked how in the the last chapter she called it a toothpick <laughs> remind me of Arya's weapon i think what was Arya's sword called in game of thrones it's like um needle yeah. needle yeah i was like it's yeah. like splinter or something <laughs> no yeah it's needle you're in, right in you know i'm not like even a huge game of thrones fan but for some reason i like retained a lot of information, information. About it. <laughs> right? i mean i liked it but i wasn't like die hard but i somehow retained a lot of information and it's coming through with this book <laughs> <laughs> i wanted to quickly go back to what the the uh, question that you asked nick about like what our thoughts were on like the lock tomb and yes you know her her dead parents um and my thinking was, is, you know, we had talked about how, you know, their magic doesn't work in space. So then that got me thinking that, okay, well, maybe if she's in space, her powers doesn't work back on the ninth house either. So that's kind of why they're, quote unquote, hidden behind the doors of the locked tomb, because she can't do her reanimation or I forget what they call it, the energy. Did I say that right? The energy. The energy, yes. Uh while she's away so i was just thinking about that i just wanted it's, to mention that it's exactly where my head was at my, my first yeah. read was like okay this is so we know the lock tomb is some sort of place or area that it has to be protected and there's a large door of some sort that's protecting it among whatever and the parents are choosing to and by choosing being sent there by harrow uh to pray and atone behind it which is basically her way of literally putting skeletons in the closet, essentially. Oh my god! <laughs> and, you know, it's like so. When she flies away, are they just gonna like collapse and turn into like bones, or, or are they just gonna be frozen in like stillness and stationary, sitting you know behind the door? And that's you know the image alone to me is both beautiful and and a little uh, gossamer and, and grotesque, but also really cool. So. Going into the final chapter that we're covering on today's podcast, Chapter 7. This is a pretty big one. This is where we start to meet some new players on the field, um, some new members of the Dramatis Personae, and I was 
really interested to hear everyone's thoughts um, on Moira, Moira Quirk's uh, audiobook for these characters because I'm a big audiobook reader now. Not every audiobook is the same, and a lot of times it has to do with uh, budget restraints or the or the range of the, the reader. And I personally feel like Moira Quirk is very capable of putting on in a, a unique tone and voice for every character um, while also making them all feel like they belong in the same world. And I feel like that's an achievement that she should get an award for or something. Sometimes I'm listening to a book and, and the narrator will get that one character just so good. And then there's another character that's not so good. And they both share the same amount of page time. And it just drives me nuts. It doesn't happen often, but I, I feel like this one just checked all my boxes. And so going into chapter seven, uh, Emily, would you like to read our prospectus? Okay. So chapter seven, Gideon and Harrow look out the shuttle at the home of the first house, a brilliantly blue water-filled planet that entrances Gideon while Harrow stays focused and aloof. They find that they have been flown remotely to their destination, a point that Gideon focuses on to briefly envision beating the crap out of Harrow before thinking better of it. In preparation for landing, there's a slight delay, but eventually Harrow and Gideon's shuttle break orbit and goes in for landing. Harrow and Gideon take up unique approaches to protect their eyes against this new sunshine-filled planet. Harrow wraps a slip of black cloth over her eyes, while Gideon dons a pair of old-school mirror-tinted aviator sunglasses. Harrow and Gideon step out of the shuttle to an incredibly large landing pad. Here, Gideon gets her first look at the ancient and decaying mansion on the seaside cliff. After admiring the extravagant but dilapidated beauty of the castle, a small, ancient, white-robed priest introduces himself to the ninth house as teacher. Looking around, Gideon notices several animated skeletons helping the other five adept cavalier pairs exiting their shuttles. She also notices that there are still two more shuttles that have yet to land. Gideon feels slightly overwhelmed at seeing so many new persons in one place. After a short delay, the shuttle of the third house lands and spills the contents of its unorthodox passengers, a pair of necromantic twins, both born at the same moment, and their hair-gelled cavalier. Gideon notes the differences in appearance between the blonde third house twins before looking to the final arriving shuttle. A young person steps out of the last shuttle and promptly faints into one of the white-robed priest's arms who, being small and old, does a poor job catching the limp body. Seeing this, Gideon runs across the landing pad to help. As Gideon takes the weight of the young, frilly-dressed female, a sword point is placed against the back of her neck. After coughing up much blood, the fainted woman is revived enough to call off the sword of Protezilaus, the cavalier of the seventh house. Teacher introduces the blood-bespeckled woman as Duchess Dulcinea Septimus of the seventh house. Harrow expresses terse words with Lady Septimus regarding the behavior of her cavalier, and while Lady Septimus begs forgiveness of the ninth house, she seems to find the whole event delightfully funny and even coyly winks in Gideon's direction. As Harrow and Gideon walk away, Teacher discloses that Lady Septimus has a terminal disease common within the genetics of the family of the seventh house. Hearing this and that the lady's life expectancy is less than age 25, Gideon feels a pang of sadness for her. Such a big chapter for new characters and new setting. We've left Dreary Dribber and we have entered 
Canaan House or outside of Canaan House, a new planet. Now, before we dive into um, our time on the planet, I wanted to quickly mention things that kind of stood out to me that um, upon reread that I really enjoyed was uh, Harrow's antsiness inside of uh, the shuttle kind of going piggybacking off what Junior was saying about Thanergy and being away from, for, for the first time in a long time especially, away from any sources of power. Um, you can kind of see why that would make hair a little squirrely and, and, and a little uneasy. She handles it pretty well from Gideon's eyes, but that was something that I picked up on a little bit um, uh, just at the start of the chapter. Yeah, she definitely describes her as being like very um, tense and stiff. And I it was it was subtle, like mirror definitely stuck with the tone of Gideon's like what she would observe but she does convey that like you said Harrow is pretty uncomfortable being out in space you know I would also say too that she um I feel like she she was trying to present both of them in the best light too and is trying to make sure that you know her and uh, Gideon are up to the standards of what the the ninth house should actually be so in preparation for a landing <clears throat> she's like trying to make sure that that gideon is going to be on her best behavior i feel like uh, so that way when they are you know presented uh to these priests and whoever else is going to be um on that 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 planet um that they're well received 100 percent, and i like that before they even land we we get the sense that this is a much different planet than the ninth house so we get the it has a grayish tint to it um look it does have its own version of a dreary i think but we do see blues and greens and browns and and uh colors that probably don't even exist mostly um on the uh, on the ninth and that was something that I, um i was excited about just as a reader going into it being like okay new setting not that i, I mean i could have read a whole book on dreaber because i just love the setting but it's almost like it's just complete opposite side of the spectrum when it comes to um, settings for these characters to attend. I mean, I think the fact that she had to wear sunglasses was because <laughs> it was know. so bright. <laughs> I love that she says something like, uh, "I came prepared, my sweet." <laughs> She's like, "What are you even saying half the time?" <laughs> I wonder if there's even like I just honestly I feel like it's so dreary there that like. It's like when you live in darkness for so long, your eyes really are not, can't get adjusted. Like they're too sensitive to sunlight. And like, that's why I think, you know, she had the cloth over her eyes. And I'm just like, I wonder if it's not just like a quirky thing that Mira put in there of just being like, oh, she's going to, I'm going to give her sunglasses and stuff like that. I wonder if it's like literally that the characters have a sensitivity to sunlight because it's so dreary Mm -hmm. where they're from. Absolutely. I, I, I think the same. And for me, so far, this is probably my favorite chapter. <laughs> um, and I was just excited for Gideon to finally get off the rock. Yes, 100%. <laughs> you know, and um, just and she's excited I think, about it too. yeah, I was just about to say, yeah, and she was very excited about it. And, um, and, you know, she's just waiting to see like, what's next and like this, this journey of theirs. Um, and the way that um, you're um, describes even like the shuttle landing and then you know the door opening and exposing them to uh, where they'll be at for in my eyes a couple of days um, it just I don't know like it, like it just really uh, got me really excited to see what was next for uh, Gideon in her journey 100% I, I love I love the energy that Gideon has she's like a 
like a kid's first time at Disney or their first time visiting Hawaii or something where she's like in the plane window looking out at all the clouds yeah. and the beauty of it all. And she's just like getting all antsy and then she puts on her glasses and, and Harrow's got her hood on or Harrow has her eyes blocked out with like a cloth so the sun doesn't hurt them. And Harrowhark, I love one of her quotes, she's like, hood up, breathe Harrowhark, hide that ridiculous hair. Your dead mummified mother's got ridiculous hair. Griddle within the planet's halo now, and I will delight in violence. Like some of the some just grade A banter from the two of them. Um, but I also love that she's like, you know, I came prepared, my sweet. And then later on, she busts out the sunglasses, and she's trying to tell like, oh, you shouldn't wear those, you know, the the cloth around your eyes. But you can't um, if you're wearing those. She says, uh, but then you couldn't have admired these. And she whips them out. And she's, like, she's like almost like a flourish. Like she's dramatic about it. It's like you're getting this big. Gideon energy which from the beginning she's had but it's almost like she's getting what she wants she's she's no longer stuck in dreary dribber and she's going on this adventure somewhere new and it, it's almost like intoxicating her energy um that was just something that like, stuck out to me in my reread there was honestly just so much happening in this chapter i i actually yeah. i had to reread like the whole part when the seventh house arrives and like <laughs> she comes stumbling out bleeding i had to like i was listening to actually i had to pull the book out because i was eating dinner and listening to the audiobook at this at it for this chapter that like i remember like sitting there eating and like i was paying attention and then all of a sudden there was like blood on the on the priest and and this girl is crying and there's a sword on the back of Gideon's neck and I was just like wait what is happening and I like had to like pause the audiobook and like find where we were in the actual book and like follow it around and I honestly had to reread it like three times because I'm like where is the blood coming from why is she bleeding why is there this person who has a sword to Gideon's neck I was like she didn't even do anything wrong she's just trying to help the person who apparently has blood I was I was very confused it took me like two or three times to like fully understand what was happening. Yeah, I can totally see that. And I I think that's kind of the the fun part about it though is because like you don't see it coming. It, like Nick was saying, it's this whole like kid in Disneyland energy. Like they're yes. showing up, it's this big moment and you're like, they, you know, they're entranced by the big house and the landing pads and these, you know, animated skeletons. And then all of a sudden there's a, girl coughing up blood and like you said she's got a knife point on the back of her neck and you're just like what is happening that's why i had to <laughs> just read it because yeah, yeah exactly because it was like yes it was like everything was very happy and cheery like it was an exciting time and then all of a sudden they're just like and then the shuttle shows up and skeletons pry the hatch open and a girl comes falling out and then the <laughs> slides down the priest and his white his pristine as she describes white robe is now covered in blood and i was like wait what that's they they say covered in blood and that's when I I literally like dropped a fork I was like wait what (laughs) yeah it's funny that you actually say that because for me I was so grossly involved in this chapter that I didn't have to reread it because I was just like like everything that was happening I was just like okay this is like crazy like all this is going on but like I literally followed everything that the author was actually saying and again I think it's just because it was my favorite chapter so far um to me it felt like everybody's like going to like a sporting event and they came from all these different places and like to me the shuttles represented a plane and they're taking their baggage off the plane and this girl was like hiding in the luggage compartment somewhere and just like rolled out of there and like now you know and like 
due to hypoxia or something, I don't know, from traveling and she wasn't like where she should have been. Because um, if I do remember correctly, she wasn't supposed to be there or wherever she was stowed away at. It, it just seemed like, unless I, I misunderstood what she was saying in that particular part of the of, of the paragraph. So all the shuttles line up outside of orbit, right? It's, it's very uniform. It seems like it's yep, like, I got like that. Order. Yep. And then they all descend, and then I believe two get kind of like caught up in something, and they don't. And they're, you know, we know they're getting scanned. So again, small world building details popping. Mm-hmm. They have some sort of technology that can do that um, to identify each person. And there's something amiss with that shuttle, um, and it doesn't land right away. I think Gideon makes a comment about how there's like one less or two less shuttles that should be there. Yeah. And then theirs kind of comes in hot, and it seems to uh, indicate that something happened on board um, during entry or re-entry um, yeah. that caused it to happen. I'm not, I don't think it says anything about her not supposed to, like she's definitely supposed to be there. She's she's supposed the, to be there. Yeah, she's the heir of that house. Um, yeah, but definitely not in the condition that she's in. Oh, she wasn't supposed to come. So basically, that might have been what you maybe may gotcha. Yeah, that's probably what it is. Yeah. So um, our. Oh man, I'm so happy we're we're finally at this character. Let me just pull up my um. So teacher. Oh God, <laughs> teacher! What a character! What a character! Teacher. He's so extra. So, you know, teacher right off the bat is like, "Why? I, you're sick. You had the thing." And she's like, "Yeah." He's like, "Then why did you come? Like, you you could the, the journey alone could have killed you." And she's like, "But isn't it so great that I did?" Like, so you're getting the sense, okay, you know. Harrow and Gideon might be, you know, up to this point, the most extra people we've met. But it seems like each of these houses' heirs is going to have, have their own little, them, yeah, their, their own little story going on. And uh, yeah, she's definitely one of them. Um, yep. And, we and I think the author even alluded to that, like because when they were talking about those two shuttles, you know, being late, it seemed like he was actually kind of saying, like, oh, yep, yeah, you know it was expected that they were going to be late or whatever it was. So something obviously, like you said, happened. Um, but he, but, but he kind of knew that the priest kind of knew that the, you know, it was expected to happen. So, and, but I also feel like he always had like this positive energy uh, about him and this <laughs> bright light around him, like an aura that just like, didn't matter what was going on. He seemed to always find the positive in everything. So that was kind of cool to, to uh, see that type of character because so far everything has been like very like negative in a sense and um he's just like the complete opposite of everybody else he really sticks out especially upon landing you have all these shuttles coming down landing uniform and we're outside canaan house and it's this dilapidated building this dilapidated structure castle almost you can imagine like water running out of parts of it. it's above it's above water too um because it seems that uh, gideon mentions there's more ocean than this planet knows what to do with. It's all overgrown with grass and moss. Like it, it seems like nature has kind of overtaken this castle, but it's still functioning to some degree. So you have this like really beautiful neo-gothic, almost like post-apocalyptic looking uh, scenery setting with all these skeletons that are like slightly more organized and more, a little more clean cut than the skeletons we've seen so far. And then we have Teacher, who's just like this little old man who's like super positive and energetic. And it's not like what you'd expect to be rolling out the red carpet or like in this case, like the black carpet of like doom, essentially it's this big meeting of necromancers. And this is the guy that's going to be the welcoming party. So it like right off the bit, off the uh, bat, uh, kind of like what Emily said at the start of this episode was that you're going to start to not be able to hold on to things that you're familiar with. And she's going to take you for a ride. And that tornado is going to come and hit you. And you just have to kind of like just hold on and brace yourself for the, for the ride. Yeah. I did want to say too, like, 
Are you listening to the audio, Junior? Are you doing audio as well? Yes, I am. Yeah, so I think another thing is in the audio, Moira Quirk, the way she does teacher's voice, she just like embodies that chipper positivity. And like you said, Junior, up until this point, it's been a little dark and gloomy and everybody's been kind of shitty. Like Crux is just kind of like a, you know, just rude and like Lemonade and everybody. And then teacher's like, oh, hail, hail the house. And he's like, so glad to see you. And you're like, oh, well, who is this guy? Like, <laughs> he's like this little puppy dog of, you know, I don't know, just positivity. And the audiobook, I think, does a really good job of giving him that personality. And I think re if I had just read it, I wouldn't have given him like that much of that peppy personality. But that's definitely what his character calls for. I think I think so too, especially with his body language and um, <laughs> going off what you're saying with uh, with teachers. He's he's almost like a old Ted Lasso, but like more like religious and more zealous a little bit because he's, he's more like uh, not it's not showy. He's not he's not a showman, but he has that like that priestly you know welcoming committee vibe to him. But he's also like weirdly positive and just like overly nice which is like a strange uh, comparison to the rest of the party that showed up. And then we meet Dulcinea. Um, and I'll probably say this about every character in this book and in the next book, but one of my favorite characters right off the bat is just like this, this not a pitiful character, but right out the gate, she almost has like a tragic backstory. This is the tragic backstory character. She has this disease that's going to take her life eventually, but she came anyways. And Very, like, very ditzy to me, I felt like. Yeah. She has like that debutante, like, oh faints and I love, I love that she basically faints and then Gideon catches her and you just have like all Gideon's magazine fantasies coming coming to reality <laughs> <laughs> and and that character is definitely playing into it with, with Gideon when she winks at her so yeah mm-hmm. 100% Lisa what did you uh, what did you think about Dulcinea dramatic <laughs> <laughs> she's terminally That's super Ill. dramatic <laughs> dramatic yeah, she's dying. Come on, Lisa. I mean, yeah, but like then she just like immediately like gets up and like walks away and like winks and is like, you know. Oh yeah, she's totally working it. You yeah, know? yeah, she's like, for sure. Oh, she's like, she's like, oh, I'm dying. Goodness. I might as well use it to my advantage. She's like that. Yeah, the person with the handicap sticker that doesn't actually need it, but they're just like utilizing for the pocket spot. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like when it's like when somebody puts a handicap like when they have the handicap thing for like lower back pain, and I'm like, okay. <laughs> Welcome to corporate America. We all have lower back pain. <laughs> I need one of those. Yeah, I so drama, so much drama, drama queen. That's like Love exactly drama. it, yeah. right away. And, it, and it's kind of funny thinking about one of my favorite things that's come from this podcast, among many uh, so far, is something Emily said. Um, I believe in the second episode, talking about the first chapter. It, it has like this, not necessarily Broadway, but it, it does kind of remind me of theater again, where you have these each ship descends at the same time. Everything's very like, uh, not mathematical, but it almost feels like it's all on tracks, you know, almost like a ride at, at, a, at a park. Um, and these characters one by one exit their, their pods or their ships, their shuttles. And it's like, here are the new players coming out into the, into the fold. This is, this is the new set of characters that will be following along for the rest of this journey. Um, and I like that. Th- there's a sense of right away drama and intrigue and, differentiation is a, is a big thing for me that was 
probably my biggest note from this chapter is like, oh, okay, so they're necromancers, but not every house so far anyway, at least for these three that we've seen total in this moment, are like the ninth house because they're not dressed the same way as Gideon and, and Harrow. And in fact, Gideon and Harrow are like revered as like these sacred nuns upholding this sacred duty. I can't believe I'd be, you know, saved and caught by a sacred nun of the ninth of the locked tomb. Like it's this big grandiose idea while these other necromancers are like in more bright, vibrant colors and seem to have a little more uh, upbeat um, or layered cheery personalities. And that was something that really stuck out to me on both reads. And I was wondering what you guys thought about the, the differences of the different houses so far anyways. I have to say, I definitely like the diversity in the different houses so far. Um, and I'm glad that you actually brought up how, you know, um, they were, uh, Dulcinea was looking at them as very revered and like, I can't believe like I was, you know, <clears throat> you know, in the presence of, you know, like of the ninth house and things like that. Um, but I'm really interested to see how her uh, relationship with Gideon plays out going forward. Because I kind of feel like the author, the author has set us up for that just by the simple fact of her saying that she gave her a wink and then they walked off and you just know something's going to happen between those two. And so I'm interested to see how that actually plays out. And this is, this is my curiosity. It was peaked it. at that point. Oh, so, but again, you know, this chapter has been my, my favorite so far and I know it's going to just get better as the book goes on. So even though Emily and I have both read this book at length, do not hesitate to give all of your best fan theories and speculations of what's to come because even though I, I, there's no spoilers up until what we've read, I love to hear them and, and just kind of like see how close or how far away or, or how similar um, to my own thoughts going in. That's a big thing too with this podcast is I'm reading these chapters and while I know what's to come, I'm really trying to get, get also put my mind back into uh, my kicks with me first reading this book and, and the thoughts I was having up to this point. And uh, I, I definitely felt very similarly. I right off the bat wanted to know more about these twins too. Um, they just seem like very specific and very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just total opposite to Gideon and Harrow, whereas if Gideon and Harrow are this dark, gloomy, robed uh, duet, you have over here this bright and shiny, glowing on the sun, like twins, these radiant twins. That just Not like darkness and light, because I, I get the sense that they're all necromancers, that's why they're here, but definitely a different world that they're from and i, I want to know more about them what about you lisa the same i mean i'm just really excited to like i mean we've kind of gotten such a small glimpse of these house of just like a few of these houses that i'm excited to see what it is that they're all doing there and how they're all gonna like be together and like mingle and mesh i'm excited to just see how like the different things are i mean not not to continue to compare to other works and um, other mediums and stuff like that, but like the houses give me like subtle like Hunger Games vibes with the different districts where it's like I feel they're in the capital and like the different ones have like different classes of not money, but just like there's just like more elegant ones and not so elegant ones, and I feel like it's just going to be interesting to see how they all mingle. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's perfect. I mean, I, I definitely get that sense of here are the chosen representatives and they're all coming to the first house 
for a competition of some sorts and we're just starting to get into, introduced to them and this is our first glimpse of exactly like you said how different everybody is like they're not all the same like clearly it stands out that they're the only ones who are in black robes with you know the skull paint so um yeah i think it definitely gives you that feeling kind of the hunger games and that i like that though because it does give you again something to kind of keep you grounded like okay i this seems a little familiar yet it's completely not so it's that sort of genre bending thing right you you kind of have a foot or you know in one part of the world or you kind of understand what's going on but she's doing it in such a unique way um, but you definitely feel that anticipation, like, oh, okay, here we go. I know, I know, we're going somewhere next, you know. So yeah, I'm very. I think that's a good point. Very excited to see how how it continues to play out. Totally, I could see that too. And I think actually, the person that had put me on to it had, among other um, comparisons that I won't share because I don't want to give any ideas or, or or hints away. But you did say Hunger Games um, was on that list of similar books and. Now that I finished the book, I can I can kind of see where that comes from, and definitely in this moment, especially that that sense of familiarity and um, uh, just that it's that same vibe almost. And I also like that that's the energy that the characters are giving off. The letter from the Resurrecting King, um, I'm calling for the heirs of the houses to come tend their emperor's wishes to become his new uh, lictors and cavaliers, and you know come for this necromancer gathering at the first house. So like that's what we know as far as like the official summons is, and then when the characters get there, it's interesting that Harrow at least like immediately starts thinking that, thinking this is going to be a competition of some sort, or or at least the people there are at odds, or her enemies, or the people that she needs to look out for. Which you would think, if all these people are supposed to be working for the same person, or they're you know serving under the same master or same ruler, it's already interesting that there's there's a little bit of. Um, uh, not necessarily animosity, but uh, mystery between the houses. And I can't remember if it's this chapter or the previous chapter, but they they made note that the people at their first house don't even know the names of a lot of these heirs coming to see them because that's that's how limited communication is between the houses. And that is another just little piece of world building um, uh, tidbit that I collected when I when I had first read it. Kind of pairing that with the setting and the fact that okay, let's building didn't always look like this and we'll get more into that in the next couple chapters but at least stepping outside and seeing Kane in the house for the first that's at the seaside it's like it almost has like this castle the shining hotel mixed with like a castle and it's got some gorman gas vibes it's also by the ocean there's skeletons everywhere but it's also really beautiful because there's just like green growing all around it and you have like this vivid image of what that's in your like what it looks like in your head but now you're also thinking Okay, but then they they have shuttles. They can scan for life signs, but there's also no way of getting a message across great distances because teacher and his people didn't don't know exactly all the different like the, the names of the guests, and that's something that I thought was pretty important going into uh, chapter seven. Yeah, I really liked how um, they described the house. I, I think it was a really potent, or I don't know, just the the choice of Muir to make the house a white house. So the imagery gives you very much like a skeleton, you know, like a, an old skeleton that you find in the forest where like the earth is kind of starting to reclaim it and start, kind of starting to grow back over it. I thought that was like just really good imagery. And the way that she just describes it is it's so vast and there's so many different layers to it that in your imagination, like me, I'm always trying to imagine the things that 
authors are explaining to me, but it's just so it's not exact. It's it keeps in line with all her other sort of her tone of writing, the way she describes things. It's not like there is six tiers and in each tier there were, you know, you know, it's not that it's just like just layers of house and all these broken down, you know, it's just, it was really, I liked it a lot. <laughs> I really was impressed with the first sight of our Gothic palace in space. Yes. <laughs> Kane in the house. It's a, it's a setting that I hold near and dear to my heart for various reasons and one of my questions i'd written down for this chapter uh in wrapping up this chapter with you guys is just what your first impressions of or better yet junior and lisa because i I get the idea that um emily and i kind of saw it came the house the same way um and and emily add to it if if there's more to it too uh but junior and lisa how did you guys picture kane in the house the first house as they they landed outside of it it was very like how i brought up the hunger games earlier it just was very capital esque to me it was just like fancy <laughs> and bright lavish <laughs> yep i would agree um i just pictured them you know pulling up to this place and it's just in my mind very like just vertical a lot of just a huge castle and um and you know again mirror describes you know the colors and things like that and almost like a citadel just 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 huge um and you know everybody's here to gather um i even may have even thought about like the roman Colosseum, but more in a setting of um <clears throat> how the author has described you know the, the the building as being a place of congregation um where all these people are, are here to actually meet so to me i think roman Colosseum, i think just but just like a taller version um somewhat modern but then lots of throwbacks to um you know what castles look back you know look you know look like back in the day so i'm getting a lot of different uh vibes and imagery going on in my head 100 <laughs> percent, yeah I, I could see that too you, even like current coliseum too with the, like the, the current state of decay i could see that as well like where it's like yeah like beauty shines through a lot of like the busted parts but still there you know this place is it's beautiful regardless it'll be beautiful long after you know these characters are all dead and gone thousands and thousands of years from now like you, you get the sense that it's even though nature seems to be slowly reclaiming it it's still standing the test of time and still like among uh among us still i thought that was kind of cool yeah i think you're you're uh you know drawing it back it reminding you of the coliseum was I'm glad you said that because I, I didn't get that. But when you say it, it, it's like, yeah, you're right. Yes, I totally can see that that kind of reference there. Yeah, all I can see now is the Coliseum on Kingdom Hearts with the Hercules level. When you're, oh, yeah, you're landing, yeah. There's the huge entrance with like the landing zone. Like That's all I can think of now. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. See, that's, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, in conclusion here, guys, I think I've kind of covered all my notes and favorite quotes uh, about these chapters, I really enjoyed being able to see our girls kind of separate from uh, the fanfare of the ninth house. And one of my favorite parts was in, like similar to a junior fair chapter is just seeing these other houses and how different they are. That to me is the moment I realized, oh, this is not going to be what I was expecting. I was expecting mm-hmm. dark, dreary, uh, eyes wide shut, uh, ninth gate cult you know necromancer black robes everyone's in black robes lights are really dim everyone's wearing the same basically everyone's wearing the same outfit and it's black and when those doors open and all these different characters start pouring out i was like oh oh, okay my bearings are all over the place but i I just let it go i'm like i'm excited to see where this takes me 
All right, guys, so episode four, we'll be covering chapters eight through 11. That's page 79 through 122 in the paperback for Getting the Ninth by Tamsin Muir. Um, Junior, Lisa, Emily, thank you so much for joining me on this. It's been so much fun to dive back into one of my favorite books of all time. It is my favorite book of all time. Um, next to the sequel and just to kind of relive it and relive it with friends and seeing that same joy that I received on reading it coming through with you guys is just like this will be definitely going down one of my favorite memories um, in my life and Emily I know you and I have been talking kind of privately about how happy it's making us to be rereading this book again and how like the reread is just kind of reaffirming our appreciation uh, and our love for this book and I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for joining me on this one yeah absolutely absolutely, absolutely. yeah, yeah. I, I i've definitely enjoyed myself and um i i look forward to each time that we get to meet and this is only the second time so um, i know right it definitely just speaks to like how much fun we are actually having and i'm for sure i'm definitely looking forward to the to the next um the uh, next four chapters so well guys that's gonna be it for this one uh i have changed the rigmarole for where you can find this podcast for right now i'm in the process of trying to get us onto apple podcasts so we can kind of have more accessibility but as of right now if you want to listen to our podcast you can find us on spotify uh under wicked good books podcast um the first two episodes are up i'm hoping to get this episode edited shortly and have it posted later in the week um, before the end of october but uh that's gonna be it for this one guys and we'll see you on the next one stay wicked